1988, we had a very similar precipitation year. Historically low flows, historically fast runoff, and the Big Hole River at Wisdom went dry for 32 days. This year, same precip patterns, the river hasn't gone dry. The difference has been this spirit of cooperation for the long term that folks have. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges, successes, and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the Life in the Land films in their entirety, and I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Today we hear from Pedro Marquez, who has a background in ecology and landscape scale restoration and is executive director of the Big Hole Watershed Committee, an organization that brings together a variety of stakeholders, ranchers, anglers, agencies, scientists, community leaders, and more, to collectively address challenges and to benefit the health of all life in the Big Hole Valley in Southwest Montana. The committee began in the 90s as a gathering that was called together by the governor due to building tensions over water in the valley. And today, they've grown to be an organization that not only creates that space to collectively work through issues within the watershed, but they also secure funding and lead restoration that benefits the health of the entire ecosystem, including the human communities that live here. They've generated over $8 million in contracted funds that have gone into projects and studies on the ground. We also encourage you to check out the other Life in the Land series episodes on the Big Hole Valley to hear from different perspectives of members of the Watershed Committee. This conversation with Pedro took place in September of 2021, last fall, at the end of a pretty brutal summer for everyone in the valley and really everyone across the west that was living in the land. Area wildfires blanketed the valley in smoke from early July to late September. Record droughts parched the landscape, creating many stresses on the wildlife, the ranchers, the fish, and the guides that make their living on this river. It's a year like this that really puts collaborative work on the landscape to the test. Pedro speaks with us about the importance of bringing varied perspectives together and how local solutions can address relatable pressures that are being felt around the world. Droughts, increased demands on waterways, sustainability of local agriculture, wildlife habitat loss, and land development. He also shares the value in letting nature and local voices guide the work. So we're about halfway down the Big Hole River, just about 162 miles or so. We're out of high alpine terrain and we're getting into kind of high desert landscape. But this river and the floodplain that we're in is really what keeps this area thriving for people that want to visit and for people that make a living off the landscape here. It's gorgeous. It's your classic Montana cottonwood lined streams, deep, cold, abundant water most of the time. <laughs> Melrose is the town right here, and it's a, it's a small community, um, tight knit communities based around the, those two major industries of agriculture and recreation. Um, and it's mostly fly fishing, is really what, uh, what drives the local economy here. Uh, the salmon fly hatch here is famous. When it comes up in June, you know, you just people come out of the woodworks to come fish the rivers. 
Winter can get rough here as it can in most of Western Montana. Snow doesn't really pile up that deep, but it does in the mountains. We've got the Highland Mountains to our east and the Pioneers to our west collecting a lot of snow and that snow's slowly filtering into the big hole from both directions uh, all year round. That's the resource that, that everyone needs to make this place work for them. As far as the families that ranch here, a lot of them go back lots of generations. It's, it's not a new ag type of town. It's, people have been around for a long time. They've seen the ups and downs of, of the business of ranching and of the ebbs and flows of the river as it relates to, to climate and precipitation and different years. Either of these businesses, there's, there's hard realities related to them, right? We can't control how much snow comes down in the winter and how fast it comes off the mountains, you know, and that affects your fish populations. It affects how much you can irrigate. And this is one of those years when both ranchers and, and outfitters and guides are making real major adjustments in how they run their operations. And what I've seen that I think is, is really encouraging and to me is a testament to the Big Hole Watershed Committee and the importance of the organization is that folks really are making these changes to their operation with the resource in mind. They're not making changes to sort of maximize short-term profit at the expense of the resource over the long term. It's, it's actually quite the opposite. They're making sure they can get through the year, but at the end of the day, making sure that the fishery bounces back and that their operations can continue into the future is the driving calculus that folks are making. In 1988, we had a very similar precipitation year. Historically low flows, historically fast runoff, and the Big Hole River at Wisdom went dry for 32 days. This year, same climate, same precip patterns. The river hasn't gone dry. You know, it's not great, but we haven't lost the river. And the difference has been this, this spirit of cooperation for the long term that folks have. Um, so we've seen an unprecedented amount of giving back water for irrigation. We've seen our guides and outfitters put on voluntary restrictions on their own business in this, for the sake of the fishery, to not overfish and to get off the river early um, because temperatures heated up quite a bit this summer. I think that's, that in a nutshell is, is something that the Watershed Committee really started 26 years ago during a year quite like this one. I wasn't around back then, I didn't see it. And just over lunch, when one of the ranchers on our board walked in, he walked in and the first thing he said to me was, this reminds me of 88, but the river didn't go dry. That says a lot, and I'm trying to get that message out as much as possible. As, as bleak as things may look and as tight as things are, you know, financially for people, that's the silver lining that, that we're seeing. We've got the foundations of a, a cooperative framework that we really need to lean into now more than ever. I think when, when things get stressful, the easy answer is choose a cause of the stress and point a finger and you know say, oh, it's, this is why this is happening, right? And that's kind of an easy out. And it, in reality, it's way more complex than that, right? We're dealing with ecology and 
natural resources and natural systems. And that requires a knowledge base from lots of different disciplines to really fully understand them, understand the dynamics of how a landscape captures water, stores water, releases water. No one person's gonna have all the answers. You need different experts and you need them to all talk together and share their knowledge base so that we can start to come up with a realistic picture of what's happening. Then that points us into realistic options that we may have to improve the resource. More water available late season is something that we've really honed in on as a, a target that we want to see. There's lots of different ways to get there. They're all complicated and they all require partnerships. That's been the spirit behind the Watershed Committee since it was founded. It's this idea that if we don't create a space for that conversation to happen, and if, for example, the grayling gets listed or the river gets determined to be a chronically dewatered system, that would have triggered regulatory agencies to take a more heavy-handed approach at how water is managed on this landscape. The thought of that was just really frightening to people that use water and manage water. And so the alternative is let's create this space where we can, as best as possible, understand our resources. Every third Wednesday of the month, we've been creating that space and holding that space and inviting experts to help us understand this watershed. And that's been happening for 26 years. It's that persistent space that we've created that has, I think, impacted the culture of how we deal with natural resources here in the Big Hole. It's really different than other places. There's other watersheds where that culture hasn't been cultivated over all these years, and you hear stories of lots of fighting over water. You know, that's an old Mark Twain thing about, you know, whiskeys for drinking, waters for fighting over. It's like, it can be. <laughs> Ideally, it's not if you can create a different understanding of, of water and more nuanced understanding of how we use it and how it's so crucial to, for everybody. You know, one of the parts of this job that I didn't, that I'm starting to come around to and understand is because we're, we're really known to represent a broad base of stakeholders, when we decide to, to voice an opinion about a particular issue, it does carry a lot of weight. You can't, you just can't create a group like this overnight and have it have the influence that it does. You know, it really takes persistence and, and this sort of longevity and track record that I think the Watershed Committee has developed. And one of the reasons I think we have that track record is there's been a, a real insistence on the group not diving face first into contentious political battles in the sense of not leaning one direction or the other, left or right. But when it comes down to it, water is life for all of us. And there's real and practical improvements that we can make that makes more of this available more often. Pedro tells me about how the Big Hole Watershed Committee's work on the ground has evolved, including an example of some of the research and programs they've funded and driven forward. In 88, when the river went dry, it was kind of a everyone for themselves attitude. When that happens, 
it's, I mean, maybe it's like a tragedy of the commons type of situation, right? Where everybody's just looking out for themselves and then river goes dry. Um, there was some parts of the water, of other watersheds in Montana that were pushing people to convert to pivot irrigation. And there was an idea that pivots are gonna be more efficient, you're gonna use less water, so there'll be more water left in the river. And at the watershed committee, they, we really funded a lot of studies to understand our water budget, and we came to understand the value of flood irrigation and the return flows from flood irrigation. It's an inefficient method of irrigation in the sense that you're dumping way more water on the land than the grass needs to grow. But what it does do is it saturates the soil profile all the way down. And what that does is it actually cools the water down because that water underground is 50 degrees. And if it's on the surface, it's heating up depending on how hot the day is, right? You know, so these early water budget studies that we funded were really an effort to uh, better understand the resource. When we did the water budget and we saw how much return flows contributed to the river, um, and so that's water that's coming back into the river at 50 degrees because it's been down in the soil profile. That's cooling the river, so that's great for fish. Ranchers down here in the Melrose Glen area realized that the only reason they have water in August and September is because they're taking return flows from the flood irrigators 80 miles upriver. So that understanding connects people. And it's really neat to see how kind of science leads to that connection. They understand the connection of the whole resource and, and everybody working on it. So in a dry year like this year, it's absolutely critical. The flood irrigation return flows from the ranchers up top were absolutely critical for folks that are making a living down here. If everyone were to switch to pivots and be super efficient with their water use up in the upper basin, this would be dry right now. You'd, you'd have just a basic amount of return flows coming off of the hills, but you wouldn't have that real input of cold water. And so that only came from us really letting the science lead and, and, and funding the work that really gave us the baseline information that we needed. The Arctic grayling is a fish species found in the upper Big Hole River watershed. This area is the last fluvial stronghold or the last native population left of the species in the country outside of Alaska. Trying to do better for the Arctic grayling, that was another big push of ours early on. We didn't want that fish to be listed under the Endangered Species Act. Because as soon as that happens, then any irrigation withdrawals by an irrigator can be considered a take against the livelihood of the fish. So all of a sudden, you've got the fear of litigation, if you're a rancher, for just trying to make a living, right? So that was untenable. So then the answer becomes, how can we prevent this fish from getting listed? What do they need, right? Um, and that's where the partners program with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service came in. And again, it's a lot of partnership and the Big Hole Watershed Committee was key in that partnership in bringing funding for specific projects. And we let the specialists, the resource specialists, the fisheries biologists guide where we needed to work. They really formed the relationships with the ranchers and the irrigator base. And we just really focused our efforts on bringing the resource to them so that they could put in the projects that needed to happen. 
after lots of years and lots of hard work in 2020, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service determined that that fish did not need to be listed um, in the Endangered Species Act. And they really cited the voluntary conservation that's going on in the upper river as one of the things that's putting the fish on the right trajectory. Um, I mean, it's a, just a testament to collaborative conservation. You can hear more about that program in a later episode where we speak with Jim McGee with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Partners Program. Pedro goes on to tell me what the committee's work on the ground really looks like and the importance and benefits of working with natural systems. So after the early years of, of really funding studies and investigations to, to better understand the resource, we've been moving into more proactive project type work, but we've moved more into restoration projects. We physically don't have a space. We don't have a headquarters. We work out of our staff. We have a staff of three full-time and two part-time. We each work out of home offices, but mostly our work is face-to-face -face with people on the landscape, looking at resource issues, bringing people together, ideally on the land, on the ground, kicking the dirt around, bringing those different expertises together to generate directions for solutions and to try to be proactive. So what that looks like is, is some of what you've seen with day-to-day -day interactions with people and just staying kind of ears to the ground and in the loop with what people are concerned about and where there are issues. It means a lot of phone calls, a lot of grant writing, and a lot of trying to bring more and more people into the fold and into this spirit of conservation. Some of the exciting things that really my, my predecessor had started us in this direction and it's allowed us to increase our capacity is now having a full-on, a full-time restoration program manager. We've brought in in-house expertise in stream ecology and basically construction oversight so we can take a resource concern and move a project forward. We bring in the experts we need. Uh, we raise the money to do that from a whole bunch of sources. And again, just like our spirit of partnership, every project requires a partnership. A lot of the, the energy and activity that you maybe see about the Big Hole Watershed Committee is these big projects that we've done. For example, on Lower French Creek, the river was up against a giant terrace that was eroding 800 tons of sediment a year into the river. That impacts the fishery downstream, it impacts irrigation infrastructure, and just overall habitat and ecology. So we came up with a project and were able to take the idea all the way to a conceptual design in-house and then we hired a great engineering firm, wrote all the permits, and we were able to reconstruct 4,000 feet of that river away from the terrace, basically eliminating that sediment source and that impairment. Projects like that, we rebuilt an entire three miles of uh, historically placer mine channel that reconnected fisheries habitat, basically, from the main stem of French Creek all the way up into its headwaters, where previously fish were just not going that way because it was basically like a fire hose of water coming out. So things like that, we're, we're getting really good at generating the support for making real change on the landscape. And that change has the full endorsement of our board because they see the benefit for all water users. The wildlife 
benefit, the fisheries benefit, ranchers benefit, recreation industry benefits. We try not to be heavy handed about our approach and we try to create projects that really just kickstart the right natural processes and really we want mother nature and natural systems to be able to thrive on their own. That's really where resilience comes from. We have no intention of constantly managing and stewarding every project that we do. There's, there's not enough resource out there, you know, there's not enough money or capacity out there to do that. When we can take a degraded system and kick it in the right direction and walk away confident that that system's only going to build on itself. So our restoration program has really you know, a kind of a driving engine of our work. We also, about six or seven years ago, saw concern from producers with the conflict between livestock and predators. So wolves, grizzly bear, they're going to come in to places like the big hole. And as they do, there's potential with conflict with livestock. So about seven years ago, we started a carcass composting operation where we, for free, will pick up dead carcasses for ranchers. So that's a way of keeping the attractants that pull predators out of the hills towards private ground. It's, it's a small way of trying to remove those attractants from the landscape. That's a kind of a resource issue that our board all thought that it'd be worth our while to invest in that type of program. And we've been running with Chet a range rider program for now, I think he's in his 11th year. And he is one of a kind as far as range riders. The way he does his work is pretty extraordinary. It's a hard thing to measure the impact, but little anecdotes and stories that we hear give us some confidence that he's making a difference. The wolves basically know that he's there <laughs> and he's on their case and he keeps them honest about how they're feeding on the landscape. Um, really what we want to do is for the grazing allotments that he patrols, making sure that those wolves aren't getting used to the idea of, oh, just go down to the valley bottom and pick off whatever cow you want. That's not happening under Chet's watch. We've been able to keep that program going and keep Chet going for the last 11 years. I was fortunate to have a conversation with Chet not only about his approach to range riding, his closeness to the land as a tracker, and also his experience owning the Jackson Mercantile. You can find that conversation in a later episode of the series. Pedro goes on to tell us about the drought management plan that the committee spearheaded, which is really remarkable and could serve as a model for other rivers in the West. One of the first real accomplishments of the Watershed Committee was our voluntary drought management plan. It was the first of its kind in the state. Again, with this partnership approach, it was how really the Watershed Committee started as a technical advisory committee. In 2006, we kind of formally moved into a nonprofit structure, but the, the, the premise and a lot of the people have remained the same. It was the idea of working with our agency partners to come up with a way of managing the resource collectively. So the drought management plan required us to install stream gauges to be able to separate out different sections of the river. If the river hits a certain flow trigger or a temperature trigger, if it's temperature related, we want to protect the fishery. So a section of the river would close. The watershed committee paid for the installation of these expensive gauges and to this day still is responsible for paying 
for their operation and maintenance. The more gauges we have, the smaller the section of river that needs to be closed. And that's been something that um, has been really important for the recreation industry here because the river changes its character as it goes downstream, right? Not every part of the river is the same. Having that system in place, our agency partners see us as a, a, a as really the a kind of a trusted entity to go to to make some decisions about where to close rivers and how. There's a process in place through the drought management plan that allows for a predictable way of kind of shutting the river down when we need to, to save the fishery. And we've got unprecedented support from the guide community in that respect. The drought management plan also establishes a call down list basically where when the flows hit a certain trigger, ranchers start calling each other and they start conserving. That's one of the things that has kept the river, despite a terrible year, has kept the river from going dry is these voluntary conservation measures that ranchers have been doing. I've heard of ranchers this year taking less than 40% of the water that they could take uh, if they wanted to. And you know, water is a private property right. It's the essence of a ranching business. No one can compel them not using that water. It came with the property. It's written in, it's locked in. It's an unfortunate reality that our water, and across Montana, there are more water rights than water. We're starting off with a really difficult system that's over allocated. Voluntary conservation is one of the best tools that we have to make sure that we don't lose our rivers in really tough years. And the only reason it happens is because there's a certain level of trust and cooperation among our ranching base that keeps it working that way. There's any number of ranchers that could dry this river up um, and they would be fully allowed legally to do that. I think we need to really emphasize the fact that that's not happening. Um, and then that's not happening because of these commitments that folks have to the resource and to the longevity of the resource. It's, it's a tough thing to see sometimes in a year that's as stressful as this one because there's so little water. It's kind of a success story that things could be a whole lot worse. Pedro goes on to speak to the reality that ranchers face in the current market of their industry and what that means if ranchers cannot make a living here. It's important to keep in mind that the folks that used to maybe compete with each other for sales in the West are now competing globally. And that is not an easy business to be in, right? And, and that's, a, again, one of those hard realities that folks need to understand. And some might say, well, we'll just get out of ranching. And what I try to emphasize is walk that logic out. Take all of this fertile valley bottom and take ranching off of it. What other land use is there? It's subdivision, it's big mansions, it's trophy homes for the very, very wealthy. There's not much else you could do with this ground that has value, so to speak, in the, in the sort of money-driven world that we live in. And then if you start walking out, who cuts the grass then? And it's John Deere mowers, and it's folks that aren't stewarding the ground. They're not there every day. They're not really caring about the biodiversity of the insects or the bugs that are under the rocks. It really devolves really quickly into a 
everyone for themselves, everyone having their little slice of heaven, right? But no one else can come. So you lose the collective really quickly if you take ranchers off the land. And we could go off into all of the ecological benefits of cattle keeping the grass down so that it doesn't burn down here. There's all these other ecological benefits that ranching does. Ecological systems need disturbance. They don't need pristine and manicured. Like nature doesn't operate in pristine and manicured. It's dynamic and it's disturbance based. Like you need something to come in and rough the ground up and refertilize it. Otherwise it's kind of a finite system. Cattle provide that and, and with good ranching, you have good stewardship. You have stream banks that hold together when it's done well. And, and those are the types of things we need to incentivize and encourage. It's, it's just too easy to say, oh, ranchers take water, get rid of ranching and everything will be fine. It's like, it actually doesn't work that way. And the same way you couldn't, you couldn't take the recreation businesses off of this river, you know, because the local businesses depend on the visitors and the tourists and the fishermen and women that come here. For them, it's a, you know, one week or couple days out of the year when they can get out of their typically urban environments and high stress jobs and really just relax. I mean, thankfully, you know, I get to be out here as often as I can get down here. And folks that live here get the calm and the peace and quiet of this place. There's a lot that needs to come into place and, and line up for us to be able to continue to manage this resource so that this is here. We could very easily overfish this thing and the river would not be what it is. We're only gonna know about the health of the system if we understand it from the specialists that know things about these resources, right? One of the big changes we've seen is the density of the forests in the mountaintops and how much the forest is coming downhill. It used to be that you could look out on to the Pioneers or up in the Highlands and it was grassland way further up and the trees really were in the rocky places on top. Our fire suppression activities over 100 plus years have made it so that wildfires haven't been burning so we had a rancher just right up the way here tell us that when the pine beetle came through his land and took out you know, half of his pine trees, basically seven years after they hit really hard and all those trees died, he had springs pop up that he hadn't seen in his lifetime because you have that many fewer straws pulling that water out of the ground. And then to hear uh, the head of the ag extension at MSU come and show us the data that basically proves that anecdotal evidence. It gives us a clear sense that treating our forests might be a very effective way to make sure we still have abundant water in our rivers, right? So that gives us a clue as to an area of work that we should go in. And that's why Ben, who manages our restoration programs, we really, for a lot of reasons, he was the guy we wanted, but he has a forestry background. so. He's been out after grant money to help us support private landowners in removing conifers from their ground. And it's about water. It's not really about forestry. It's all connected, but for us, it's about water. Another critical aspect of the big hole that I haven't touched on is that the town of Butte gets 40% of its drinking water from this river. 
they pipe it up and over the Continental Divide. And so when we improve the abundance and the quality of the water through our restoration, we're improving drinking water. The manager of the Butte water supply system sits on our board and that person has sat on our board for many years because how they manage water there impacts how much they need to draw from the big hole. In November, he'll come and give us an overview of his system. Talk about a complex job. Managing, especially in a year like this, managing where you're gonna draw your water from. So in terms of like water storage, our best case scenario actually might be improving the Butte water storage system so that they depend less on the Big Hole River. Again, it's all just so complex. And there's experts in all of these areas. And if they're not talking together and understanding each other, we're not doing our job because that's where the answers are going to come from. I asked Pedro about yet another layer of these complexities and how a changing climate is impacting the Big Hole Valley. And he shared some interesting insight on how the committee and the people of the valley are building resiliency into their work. You get a lot of different perspectives on the, the thorny word of climate change. Some folks point to anecdotes of before there was heavy irrigation and there were anecdotes and, and testimonials of the river being really, really dry here. Ranchers and folks that have lived on the landscape for a long time, they tend to get less emotional and heated about any particular year. That's kind of their business to watch the ebbs and flows and kind of adapt accordingly. But there's definitely changes that are happening with runoff and the amount of snowmelt that we've been seeing. And in part because of the Watershed Committee, we've had part of our uh, public meetings includes a climate and precipitation report from the DNRC. They come to our meetings and have been for two decades now, giving folks an update on where we're at, what the predictions are for this year. That again, totally voluntary. There's nothing in their job description that says that they need to do that. Again, it's just part of the culture of, of that job position in the big hole is to keep those lines of communication open. We're seeing this year was a perfect example of it. Snowpack actually was hitting close to average snowpack for the last 30 years, but it came off really fast. It came off in April and May, and we didn't really see the rain that we typically see in June. I was hearing about there used to be kind of a running pool at the hitching post where folks would bet on the number of days that it was gonna rain in June. And the answer used to be in the 20s of numbers of days in that month that it was gonna rain. 24, 25, 26 days, that's not happening anymore, right? So those patterns are definitely shifting. We're hearing from our guides and outfitters that folks that have been coming here for decades used to book their fishing trips in July. Now they're booking them in May. There's definitely shifts happening. Everyone is adapting to those changes. And we're looking for how to build more resilience in the system, in the natural systems as much as possible. And so where that steers us is towards kind of two things guide, at least my thinking as an ecologist, is saturating soils and getting that water into the soil column, because that's where it'll stay colder. And we need to harness as much of it as we can when it's abundant in the spring, when it's full of snow. So how can the landscape hold that water back? 
we funded a study in 2005 that looked at a cost-benefit analysis of all the different ways you could hold water back in a landscape and looked at which ones really <laughs> make sense economically, right? I mean, it's things as crazy as like building up huge ice dams on the landscape, like just packing the snow together and just keeping these sort of iceberg dikes together on the landscape so that <laughs> that would hold water back to, you know, injecting snowmelt into groundwater aquifers. Um, really complex stuff. The thought of climate change can be so all-consuming that it can be paralyzing in the sense that, you know, what can I do, right, as just one individual person? But there actually are, for anyone that has a chunk of ground that they're managing, there's ways that you can manage that piece of ground that can have a long-term sort of ecological benefit and a long-term benefit to the water resource. And so every project we do typically inspires more projects because neighbors talk to neighbors and they start showing off some of what they see. These natural systems can do a lot of this work for us. Um, we just got to kind of kickstart the right projects in the right places. We're not going to be changing weather patterns or, you know, anything like that. So we try to stay focused on the things that we can manage and, and affect on the landscape. And there's plenty of clues as to what works when you look at a reference type system. Go somewhere that hasn't been totally overgrazed or trampled out or, and you see, it's those places you go to when you're kind of drawn to and you know you're in a nice place, ecologically speaking, you know it when you're there, right? We've all had that experience, like hiking up high into the mountains and being in some lush meadow that's just wet and the wildlife is all there and the system just, you get a sense that it's just, things are functioning properly. As an ecologist, I've seen enough of these spots that I kind of know and ranchers know also. They try to steward those places and make sure that they have them on their landscape. There's plenty of references out there of what we should be striving for on the landscape. People and large clunky organizations, bureaucracies, institutional roadblocks tend to be the things that stop us more than our ability to actually make change on the ground. And that takes just a lot of persistence and partnerships to kind of break through some of those roadblocks. I look a lot towards the history of beaver in the West. There used to be way more beaver, 10 times more beaver than there are currently. And those beaver, that's one of the things that they did. They held back snowpack. They created these holding ponds for themselves, which also created an abundance of wildlife, habitat, diversity, all these things. So flood irrigators that have now taken over the valley bottoms, they in essence are mimicking beaver behavior by flooding out and soaking these soils. How can we maximize that action, right? So we have some projects with the Forest Service looking in high meadow, high alpine meadows that currently don't have much of this overbank uh, activity where high flows just kind of stay in the channel and shoot downhill. Like that's not positive for us. So how can we work with the Forest Service to create projects while they're thinning to put mimicked beaver structures in these streams and get those floodplains saturated again? That's one way. And it's, it's not a one size fits all solution. It's a 
thousands of little projects all over the ground, all over the landscape. Pedro tells us about the outward-facing collaboration that the committee is involved in, in which they network with other collaboratives in the West to share resources and expand the information sharing of best practices. The Watershed Committee, we're, we're focused with our group and we've got our board and it's very much sort of big hole focused. But also, and one of the more exciting parts of my job is engaging with more regional groups and collaboratives. And there's a real interest in larger organizations than ours of kind of highlighting the success stories of small groups like ours. And we feed them examples of our work and they expose us to experts at a larger level and sometimes grant opportunities and funding opportunities that we couldn't access on our own. Um, And so we love that part of the partnerships that we do. In the summer of 2021, we were able to join an event that the Big Hole Watershed Committee was hosting in partnership with the High Divide Collaborative and the Western Aspen Alliance. In a great field event at the Mount Hagen Wildlife Management Area, this event brought together scientists, agencies, NGOs, and more to share ideas and witness best practices for implementing rehabilitation projects that benefit all life in a watershed. The focus of this event was specifically aspen growth and rehabilitation in an area with industrial impacts from mining and the nearby anaconda smelter stack. But the buzz of conversation and information sharing touched on all connected elements of the ecosystem and of this work. We know that there's a concern about us losing our aspen landscapes to encroaching conifers. We got engaged and and we've happened to have done some work around Aspen to to create more habitat um, in a wildlife management area. So we had a great sort of case study location to highlight some of the work that we're doing. And and we were able to partner with the High Divide Collaborative and they brought in experts to the field that could help us understand a healthy Aspen stand from an unhealthy one and different management techniques that we could use to improve Aspen stands overall and understand the pathogens and the bugs and the critters and how the wildlife use Aspen, how Aspen impact water use. That's always something that we strive to do is stay connected to more regional initiatives and kind of stay plugged in to things happening that are just way beyond the sphere of what what we do here in the big hole. And we find when we do that, that there's all of these groups in other places doing a lot of the similar things that we're doing. The right ideas are cropping up sort of at the same time all over the place. And we're just happen to be one group that's doing that work, but it's really reaffirming to see that it's happening all around us. And there's a great space for us to learn from each other. We hear now from Pedro at the event. It's kind of the work of collaboratives. It's bringing a bunch of uh, experts together to exchange ideas, talk about our collective experiences with Aspen and, and where we want to go with management for Aspen. We've put together a group of specialists that um, hopefully we can learn from each other and really have discussions so that as we each go back to our corners of the West and move our own projects forward, we're doing it in a somewhat informed way with each other. Um, that's really kind of what I think land management is about. No, no one entity is managing land for us, right? It's, it's a group of people and a collaborative. And the more we can integrate what we do and where we do it, 
I think, the better the results for the landscape. So represented here today, we have federal agencies, we have state agencies, um, we have private forestry uh, companies, we've got nonprofit organizations locally, um, and ones from different states. I think we have three or four states represented here. And we've got folks that work uh, in academia as well, so researchers, and, and we're really trying to combine the knowledge bases of resource managers with academics that study these subjects. And, and that's really where the integration has to happen, and it dives a lot into what the work of our organization is, as well as the High Divide Collaborative's work, which is kind of stitching people together for brief periods of time so that we can learn together. What's the benefit of having folks out here on the ground versus a virtual meeting, something in a boardroom somewhere? Yeah, I mean, you can only really understand natural systems and ecology when you're looking at it. You have to be in the ground. You have to have an expert show you the way a leaf is crinkling and tell you what pathogen it is that makes that leaf do that, right? It makes it much easier to retain the knowledge when you're actually out on site. And we spend enough time indoors anyway with our jobs. It's like, let's get outside. And especially when we can look at a site that we've done some restoration on and show pictures of what it looked like beforehand, that really, I think, brings it home for people. And here now is Emily Harkness with the High Divide Collaborative, another partner in hosting the event. I'm the program director for the High Divide Collaborative. The High Divide Collaborative um, is housed within the Heart of the Rockies initiative. Um, and we are a landscape-based collaborative that's located in um, southwest Montana and, and central east Idaho. It's essentially the connective area between the wilderness area in um, Idaho, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and the crown um, up north. And so there, it's a pretty expansive geography that has a lot of, um, a, a pretty equal mix of public and private land and uh, you see a lot of these big family ranches. Um, so that gives us a real kind of unique demographic within folks who participate in the collaborative. And we came here today to Anaconda. This is our second annual Aspen workshop. People within the collaborative were expressing an interest in Aspen and the role that it plays um, in, in wildfire and its connection with wildlife. Um, management techniques and, and restoration, there was a big interest in creating a common language of, you know, what are you doing in Idaho with the state and what are you doing in Montana at a federal level and what are these nonprofits and private forestries, um, foresters doing around Aspen restoration. A lot of the folks who are here, they work in the same landscape or they work in neighboring landscapes and, and you'd be shocked to hear how little time they actually have to, to spend together working across fences. I mean, there are some great partnerships in this area, but um, folks are just thirsty to have that, that cross collaboration, that cross pollination between agencies and nonprofits. And I mean, you can see it here tonight. You know, I'm sure that from this event, there'll be partnerships that will precipitate into possible projects on the ground in the next couple of years. I mean, the, the power of getting people together creating this sort of common language and um, making connect connections that will have an impact on durable conservation in the future, for sure. I honestly find one of the most challenging things for me is how do we, I'd love to find a better way to track 
those results. And so I, for me, part of it is just trusting, trusting in this process of giving people space to build relationships. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, today we heard Pedro talking about working with a specific contractor or how to work with certain contractors um, to make a really efficient on the ground work. And I, I could see people lighting up and I wouldn't be surprised if someone ends up using, you know, the excavation worker that Pedro's used. Just, you know, it's little things like that that I think we'll, we'll never really know events that precipitate from this, but it's part of me just has to trust that it's there. We will see it in on the ground projects in the coming year and, and maybe just bigger partnerships um, like through Land and Water Conservation Fund or other like really large scale um, landscape scale work. And now we hear from Dr. Paul Rogers, who is director of the Western Aspen Alliance out of Utah State University and was another partner in hosting the event. I organize similar workshops around the West, and basically our mission is to get science into the hands of field practitioners. In this area, we saw sort of unusual situations and uh, long-term recovery from uh, mine reclamation and what role Aspen uh, ecology and Aspen ecosystems play in that, in this uh, reclamation and recovery. It's always um, interesting to try to understand long-term how we restore areas that have been drastically changed. And that's a little bit different than most of my work around the West, in which we've changed, uh, you know, really whole mountain ranges from the soil up. And that, that makes me think about long-term, more than 100 years of recovery, as opposed to shorter-term fixes. So that's really interesting to me. And then I'm always fascinated to hear from different people with different perspectives. And so the coming together of different people is not unlike the intricate connections of an Aspen root system. And so that if we bring this diversity of people together who've had vastly different experiences and are experts in different fields, we come up with better solutions. We come up with uh, different ideas, different hypotheses, uh, and we can play those off against each other much more than I could know or any one of us could know individually. I, I do a lot of uh, uh, um, ecological work across boundaries and what I mean by that is ownership boundaries state and federal federal and private state and private and so on and interestingly enough because humans do things differently and we have different sets of rules we often end up with different ecologies on the on each side of the fence so to speak and the more we can integrate and talk about those differences we hope we can solve problems uh, because sometimes it's better to move faster as one might do on private lands, but at other times it's better to move slower and have more regulation so that we don't make serious mistakes that may take decades to recover from. To finish out our episode today, we return to our original conversation with Pedro on the banks of the Big Hole River and hear from him about this importance of a landscape scale approach and the significance of connectivity for habitats and for people. Connectivity is, you know, our ranchers down here understanding how they're connected to ranchers up there, but it's also understanding that we have these boundaries that we draw on maps that wildlife does not, they have no idea that they're there, right? The more we understand how wildlife move through a landscape, um, we all value the wildlife that we see on ranches. That's why one of the great things about the Big Hole is we still have a lot of large connected landscapes. And that means they're not all divided up by tons of fences and different agriculture uses, right? It, they're still pretty large intact landscapes. 
that are managed in a way that looks and feels natural. And that's one of the huge values that people see in coming here. Looking down here, it's like, it's not house after house after house after house, right? This is a managed landscape. This is not because we've let it go, it's because the landowners that own these parts are making decisions to make sure that there's a place for the moose and a place for the fish and a place for the people, right? And it's all of these parts and pieces are what make this place special. Again, you can't let one interest in this landscape dominate over all the other ones. Otherwise, you'll lose all of the other parts of it that are important. You can't keep a landscape connected if the people aren't connected. So we bring them together and we'll keep bringing them together. And as issues become important, we'll bring those experts to inform us and engage those conversations every third Wednesday. We'll be there doing that. Thank you so much to Pedro Marquez for sharing with us. You can find out more about the Big Hole Watershed Committee, which meets every third Wednesday of the month at the Grange Hall in Divide, Montana, at bhwc.org. They're also on Facebook and Instagram. Check out the rest of the Life and Land Project at lifeintheland.org, where you can find the film featuring these voices from the Big Hole Valley, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Thank you also to Emily Harkness with the High Divide Collaborative and Dr. Paul Rogers with the Western Aspen Alliance. You can find links to all of the entities mentioned today in this episode's show notes. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Shoshone, Bannock, Lemai Shoshone, Kalispell, Absalaga, Nez Perce, Northern Cheyenne, Blackfeet, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Thank you to Katie Sprout for field assistance on this episode and to Peyton Butler for editing assistance. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. The entirety of the Life in the Land Project is made possible with support from the Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Mindlands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winnet Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Ranchers Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Fork Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and Chase Hibbert. Also, a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to support future Life in the Land work, you may do so at lifeintheland.org. We greatly appreciate the support. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>